Lord, we come humbly before you this morning, asking for your help, your counsel, and your guidance. I ask, Lord, that I would simply be a mouthpiece for this text, that you and your heart and your desire for us would be proclaimed and be understood and embraced by your people. What we know not, Lord, would you teach us. What we have not, would you give us. What we are not, Lord, would you make us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I had Albert read that larger section of Scripture because it's all about the Word of God. And what we're looking at today primarily is just going to be a few verses of Scripture, verses 19 through 21. But I would like for you to go to the end of the book of James, and I think when we we look at the beginning and we look at the end, or we call it a top and tail sometimes, we, we get a sense of what the book of James is about, because James is a pastor at heart, and he is concerned about those who have been scattered all all around the, the Mediterranean by virtue of persecution. And he's concerned that they would remain faithful and they would remain steadfast in the midst of their trial. But if we look at the end of the book, look at chapter 5, verses 19 and 20, you get, you, I mean, this is how he's ending. So you got a sense that he's not just kind of like tailing off. He's leaving now with this kind of impactful, by the way, I want to remind you once again, statement. My brothers, verse 19, if any, anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whatever, whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. You see what James is getting at here? He's saying, I, I have just taken time to write this letter because people are facing trial. People are going through difficulty. They're facing tests. And I don't want these people who are under these circumstances to wander from the truth. And if they have, go out and get them. Bring them back, right? So this is the tone. This is the pastoral tone that James is bringing. In fact, if you look through the book, you'll notice that throughout it, he refers to his Christian readers as brothers, brothers and sisters, my brethren, uh, my brothers, my beloved brothers. He's a pastor deeply concerned for true followers to remain steadfast under trial. And that's chapter 1, verse 4. And for those who are wobbling in their faith, they'll find their their feet in the gospel. So he begins in chapter 1 by addressing the reality of trials. And this is what we've seen so far. We've seen trials and steadfastness. We've seen trials and wisdom. In other words, if you're trying to figure out how do I go about this, you're asking God for wisdom. Trials and blessing for those who do apply wisdom to their trials. And then trials and temptation, which is a reality. When we face trials, with that trial always comes a form of temptation. And now James shifts gears to focus on the the active presence and power of the Word of God in them as the source for their life and growth toward maturity. And that is what he speaks about in verse 18. He says, Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. So it was the word of God that came to these people, that that regenerated them, 
that caused this regeneration, but it's also the Word of God that continues then to be the source by which they are going to be strengthened and guided and helped and have wisdom for those trials. So when God gives us new birth, He gives that by implanting that Word in our hearts. Now, friends, this is not a kind of a new concept. You're going to see it in a couple of different places in Scripture. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22 and following says this, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So this is how this change comes. This is how this regeneration comes, through the ministry of the word of God. Now, friends, I know that we know this. I mean, for those of us in who are followers of Christ, we know this is the pattern. But it's important for us to be reminded that this is the pattern. That this is how you came to faith in Christ. Again, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, it says this, Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. The pure milk of the word, or the pure spiritual word. Logos. All right, Ephesians 1, 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So, friends, it is the word of God, the gospel preached, that penetrated their hearts and penetrates our hearts and brings life. And because that word of God resides in our hearts, We can continue and we must continue to receive what it says and then ultimately do it. In our context here at Gateway, we call that what? Knowing, applying, and proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay? This is our heart. This is our passion. We want to make sure that we are recipients of the word of God, that we are seeking then to know it, to apply it, and then to proclaim it in different kind of circumstances. And it's awesome just to hear, even some testimonies I heard this morning of how God has given you opportunity to testify and spread the word of God and spread the gospel just in the lives that you're living. And that's the way it should be. We should be mindful of this reality. So before we can get to doing the word of God, which James is going to talk about here, we must first travel down the road of both believing and continually receiving the Word of God that has been implanted in our hearts. So here's the outline for this next section, chapter 18 through 27. It's not our outline for today, but this is where we have been, this is where we are today, and this is where we're going. You might want to say verse 18 is believing the implanted Word. As we look at our text today, it's going to be receiving the implanted Word. And as we look at verses 22 through 27 next week, it's going to be doing the implanted word. Believing, receiving, and doing. But again, notice the pattern there. You don't just do. I remember in youth group, you know, 
chapter 1, verse 22 and following is really po- you know, popular. You've got to do it. You've got to do it. You've got to do it. And it's like, wait, 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 wait. Doing is good, but you can't do without knowing. You have to receive it. It has to be in you. We're not just about doing for doing's sake. It is the fruit of what God has called us to do in his word. And so this morning, I would present to you this proposition for our time this morning. The importance of receiving the implanted word in the context of testing. Now, more often than not, we come to a text like this, and we don't come to it in in the context of its setting, right? Be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. We kind of pull that out as communication tools, right, to help us kind of get along with each other. And there's an element of truth we can pull from that, but in its context, what James is saying here is speaking directly to we who are his children who are facing trials or tests, And remember, those trials and tests are not necessarily all these big things that we might be facing. It could be persecution. It could be suffering health issues or or financial uh, struggles. But often, more often than not, these are tests that we have that are on a a daily basis. And I just highlight a couple, and we're going to get there. He talks about the tongue and what you say and how you handle the tongue. That is a daily test for us all, isn't it? or whether you're going to treat someone with preference or not, or prejudice or not. That's a temptation that we have in our hearts. So these are the kinds of things, practical things, that James is getting at as he's unpacking now this point of saying the importance for us of receiving the implanted word so that we can face the kind of test that he brings our way in a way that would glorify him. We need the word of God. Now, friends, many of you have grown up in the church. And there's a positive side to that, and there's a negative side to that. The positive side is you've been a part of the family of God. You've been blessed by the, the grace that is fleshed out in the, in the context of God's people. But it also means that there's a possibility, a likelihood, that you can be desensitized to the Word of God to some degree because you've heard it so much. And that's always a challenge. You know, I went to a Christian college. And one of the things you find there is that you're, you're inundated with just God's word, God's words, God. And you can just kind of like take it in an academic way rather than see it as, as the life that God has breathed out for you. And so, friends, there's, there's a caution for us here. Now, let's get back to the text here. He begins at verse 19. He says, know this, my beloved brothers. <laughs> Imagine you're speaking to your kids. Hey, kids. I love you, and I need to tell you something, and this is important, and I want you to hear it. This is is the kind of heart that, that James has as he is speaking to these people who have been scattered. He he's saying, pay attention to what I'm about to say. This is important, this is profound. I need for you to listen. So James is saying to his readers, with regard to the importance of receiving the implanted word, I want you to consider my counsel, my concern, and my command. These are the three areas that we're going to work through as we go through this text. My counsel, my concern, and my command. You see, when Jesus spoke to the religious leaders who were trying to kill him, he says to them, and this is in John 8, 37, You seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. You see, the word of truth was not implanted in them. They had no capacity of actually 
listening and receiving what he was saying because they did not have the Word of God. Now, don't get me wrong. Those leaders knew their Bibles probably far better than most of us in here. They could tell you stories and talk about the Old Testament Scriptures in many ways. But the Word of God had no place in them. It was not implanted in their hearts. There's a big difference there. So before we're born, born again, our hearts are full of other things that, that push out the Word of God, right? It's like, it's like going to Thanksgiving dinner, right? And you go, and you know, Aunt Sally has brought over some appetizers, and they're great, and so you start picking on the appetizer, and you you see a dish that has like cream cheese and something over it and some crackers. You start you know, eating that and you know, there's other things that go along. And by the time the actual meal comes, you're like stuffed, right? And so you oh, I can't eat anything. I'm so stuffed with the appetizers. You know what I'm talking about, right? And then we serve the meal and what happens is, well, okay, I'm stuffed and I didn't have much to eat, but oh, there's the pumpkin pie. All right, and then we dive into the pumpkin pie and the ice cream, and the reality is we spend our time eating donuts, right, or, or eating bagels or pumpkin pie, whatever it might be, and we never actually get to the main course, the main food. And I think sometimes the Word of God is crowded out with, with the candy, so to speak, that we eat. So we don't have an appetite for the Word of God. Now, friends, this is how the unregenerate, those who are not born again, people feel about the real meaning and the purpose of the Word of God. They feel no need for it. They don't see that it has any place in the discussion. Why? Because they have no capacity for it. They do not have the Word of God in their heart. They might quote Scripture for their own purposes, but they're not quoting Scripture because it's something that is in their heart that seems to impact how they live and how they want to think. And that's why Jesus tells us in the parable of the soils that the Word of God falls on these different hearts, but there's only one soil that actually receives the seed and grows and produces the fruit. That is the heart that has been prepared. It's the true heart. It's the heart that receives the implanted Word of God. So here's the point. The same truth, uh, same word of truth, I should say, that God uses to give us life, new birth in Him, is the same word of truth that God uses to transform our lives, to sanctify us, to grow us toward maturity. With that in mind now, let's jump into uh, what, what James is seeking to say to us now. And notice his counsel on receiving the word. Now, we know this. I, you, I could probably ask you, you know, quote this verse if you knew which verse I was talking about. And you would say, oh, I know, it's the one about something about hearing and and speaking, and anger, or wrath, or something like that, right? We know it, right? Be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. But it begins with this word, let. In other words, this is something that we should be allowing to take place. This should be something that is true in us. We want to be people who are quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Let's walk through those three things in the context of what James is saying here. First of all, we need to be quick to hear. This is a call for us to listen carefully. Now, one of the problems for us is that we're living here in the 21st century is that we need to kind of go back to the audience that James is speaking to and remind ourselves that they did not have the written word typically in their presence. They were meeting in homes. And most of the communication that took place in the homes was oral in nature. 
So you're sitting and you're listening to maybe someone speak authoritatively as an apostle, or you're reading a letter that has been sent out by an apostle, or someone happens to have Old Testament scriptures that would be kind of unusual, but they would have it, and they would read it. You probably did not you know, pull out your iPhone or your copy of the Bible and say, oh yeah, that's just true. You are dependent on what you heard when the Word of God was shared and spoken. Now, just think about that. Just think of the importance, then, of being quick to listen in that kind of context. That means you have to be eager to listen. It means you have to have a desire to hear. So for a Christian to truly benefit from what is being said or read, they needed to be a skilled listener. And if they didn't, they would run the risk of not remembering. And for them, it was critical. And it's also critical for us, isn't it? But you see, things are different now. Unlike the early church, we have the Word of God written and in print and in our language. We have multiple copies of the Bible in our homes, a variety of translations. We have commentaries, Bible programs that are online. They're at our fingertips. Some of you discuss with me the, you know, the sermon after the sermon with your phones on a Bible program right? That's a wonderful thing. But when you have so much at your disposal, you also can run the risk of being slow to hear. Why? Because it's there at your disposal. You don't need to know because you can find out in a moment. I'm even hearing people talk about we need just to do away with the whole educational process because we don't need to learn anymore. All we have to do is pick up our phones and find out the information. Right? No, I'm not advocating. I'm just saying this is kind of the way people are thinking. But you can't do that with the Word of God. That's not the intent that God has for us. So we can still be slow to hear, or to put it differently, we can be lazy with our eagerness to take the Word, uh, take in the Word of God. So what is it that we have, or why is it that we have so often been deaf to the Word of God? Let's think about this. I came up with eight things. There's probably more you could list here. But I thought this was helpful for me to process through what does this look like. I think oftentimes we are simply just too busy to take in the Word of God. We have long commutes. Um, We have high-pressure jobs. Our kids are involved in all sorts of activities. And none of those things are bad in and of themselves, but they, they impact us to the point that they crowd out if we're not careful, the intake of the Word of God. Secondly, we're so easily distracted. We have so many other things that we could be doing. You know, the iPads or TVs or entertainment or sports or whatever it might be. There's so many things that are out there. Again, none of it's bad, but they're distractions that can take us away from having this, this intake of the Word. Third, we're, we're mindlessly satisfied with what the world is offering. You know, we just don't think that the Word of God actually provides because we're satisfied with what the world has to say. Here's another one. We're, we're, we're just not convinced. And maybe we've been growing up in church and we're confused about some things. We're questioning the Bible and the claims that the church has, has made, and we're, we're left wondering whether the Word of God can be trusted. I mean, if, if society is saying all these things 
are true and it's contrary to the Bible, should we actually stick our neck out and say that we are convinced that the Bible is true? <laughs> because if you do that, you're going you're to run a crash course with culture. How about this one? Um, we have never developed the appetite. There's some things that I eat today um, that I didn't eat when I was a child. All right? Broccoli would be one of those things. All right? What? You just develop an, ap an appetite. I, I drank coffee all my life with cream and sugar. And one day I said, you know, I'm going to try without cream and sugar. I'm just going to drink it straight. And I started to do that. And now when I drink it with cream and sugar, it's like, ugh, ugh. All right? But you have to develop an appetite. It's the same is true with the Word of God. And, and sometimes this happens because we haven't taken time to see the Word, word of God as, as precious and beautiful and relevant and encouraging and, and, and a, a source of food for our souls. We kind of see it more academically. We haven't learned how we are to actually approach it. Then here's another one. We've, we've, we have a distorted understanding of how God communicates to his children. I think sometimes this is true, I think, among many Christians, is that we know we have the Word of God, but somehow we are far more consumed with the subjective. We would rather God communicate to us somehow apart from the Word of God, you know, whether it's a formation of a cloud that tells us what we need to do or some feeling inside, you know, this is the Holy Spirit speaking to me. I want that. That's powerful. And we feel like the Word of God is kind of like down here. It's nowhere near as powerful as those subjective feelings. Right? This is a problem. And what happens is we end up neglecting the Word of God and just putting all of our eggs in the feelings basket. And here's another one. Uh, we have given up on His Word. We've tried it, and it didn't work. <laughs> you know, someone might say, I quoted it when I was going through a trial, and the suffering didn't stop. As if simply quoting it, it was supposed to somehow cause it to stop, as if that's how God works with his word. Or I memorized scripture and I still struggled with anxiety or lust or depression. And so sometimes we, we, we get bits and pieces of things that God wants us to do with his word, and we think that's the answer when it's not the picture that God wants us to understand about how his word is feeding us and how it counsels us and how it guides us. So friends, it's no surprise that many Christians who are going through daily tests as well as significant trials are not looking to hear from God through his word. They've forgotten the cry of the psalmist who says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. Now understand, the blessed man is the one that we look at and say, oh wow, look how fortunate this person is. Why are they so fortunate? Because they're producing good fruit in different seasons of life. Sometimes those seasons are times of testing. And they're producing good fruit. And as a result of that good fruit, you're saying, wow, I wish I could be like that person. Well, why is it that that person is able to do that? Because they're delighting in the law of the Lord, which is the word of God. Have we forgotten that? Or maybe we're desensitized to the cry of the psalmist who says, 
Psalm 119, 105. I'm sorry, I have these up here. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Is it? He says it is. Is it a guide? Well, that's God's intent. Are we willing to embrace it so that it can be what it's supposed to be? So James is saying to his readers, you must fight through your doubt, your struggles, and your fears when it comes to the Word of God, for it is the Word of God that you, you, you uh, must listen carefully to. It is the Word of God that is the means of wisdom when you're going through some kind of testing. We need the Word of God, friends, when we are going through trial. And quite frankly, as we've talked about, the best way to prepare for a trial is to have a good theology of trials before you get into the trial, right? So that the word of God that you're meditating on or that is fueling you has already been mined and, and cultivated and understood. So, quick to hear. Secondly, we have slow to speak. Here's a call to speaking thoughtfully. All right, these are basically two sides of the same coin. Slow, uh, quick to listen, slow to speak. Now, to, to be slow to speak or to, to speak thoughtfully means that uh, your, your words are wise. Thoughtful words are wise words. James isn't saying don't speak at all. He's saying before you speak, you need to listen. You need to think. And only when you've done that should you speak. See, careful listening and thoughtful speaking is evidence of your wisdom and your maturity. The person who is undisciplined and can't listen or restrain their words is giving evidence of their lack of wisdom and their lack of maturity. So friends, just because you're thinking something doesn't mean that it is good and right to say it in that moment with that person in that circumstance. And we've all fallen into the ditch with that one, haven't we? So being quick to listen and slow to speak is a tool that helps the child of God think clearly and exercise wisdom as well as good judgment. Think about this verse of Scripture. When words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. Let that settle in. If you're a person who is full of many words, you're opening yourself up for sin, for your words not necessarily being wise words. Which brings us then to the second point under that, and that is thoughtful words are also helpful words. When you're thinking through what you should say, you're thinking through ultimately so that the words can be helpful. Often we're careless with the words because we lack restraint. We run the risk of saying things that can be hurtful without considering their implications. And if you're thinking about what life is like going through a test or a trial, you understand the kind of pressure that is there, which means that you can be emotional and you can speak. And it can have some implications that you wish you could bring back. But when we're slow to speak, we can bless others and we can be helpful. Again, here's another verse of Scripture to settle us. There is one whose rash words are like Sword thrusts. You ever been the recipient of that? But the tongue of the wise brings healing. Now, if you're like me, I struggle with that. That's just, that's just part of 
and parcel of being human and struggling with this thing that God has given me, a mouth that can make words and communicate you know, sentences and, and, and say certain things, and at times it's going to be harsh, and sometimes it's not going to be helpful. And the churches in James' day typically met in homes, kind of like what we would have as far as a home group is concerned. Maybe not as formal and organized as, as we would have it even in our context. And, and the context was supposed to be a little bit more open for conversation and dialogue, which opens the door then for abuse in this way to take place, especially with a person who, who has to say something, who is not restrained. And friends, as, as a pastor, when, when someone is speaking and I'm trying to explain something and I'm interrupted, that, that interferes with the whole logical thought process and it doesn't help. And the reality is, friends, that, that with that kind of unstructured environment, there was more likely the possibility of this kind of abuse with words to take place. So James is saying to those who have tendencies and struggles like that to control their words and to be slow to speak. There's an old saying, God gave us two ears but one tongue, right? which means we should listen twice as much as we speak. And maybe, depending on where you're at, maybe you should listen four times as much as you speak. Right? Have, have a good self-evaluation. And if, if you can't do that, maybe there's someone around you that can help you with that, all right? Because this is an area, friends, where, where damage can take place. And James is going to address that, isn't he? <laughs> He's going to talk about the tongue. He's going to talk about how, how it just, it's a world of fire. Kent Hughes says humorously, if you've opened your mouth only to change feet as much as I have, this advice rings true. Let that picture kind of settle in your mind. He also says, I've never had to take back something I didn't say. So, quick to listen, slow to speak. Call to listen carefully. Call to speak thoughtfully. And then there's slow to anger. This is a call to live peacefully. This refers not so much as as these violent outbursts, of temper, but as the, the harboring of anger or resentful feelings in your heart. And so it can be, as you're going through trial, a, a, an inner grumbling against God. And it may be something that other people don't actually see. When the Word of God is accurately preached... We will often find that it hurts. Why? Because it is seeking to root out sin in your heart. Now, the pastor isn't necessarily up here picking on you. It's the Word of God that's doing its work, and it's seeking to identify some sin and root it out, and that can be painful for us. It's a sword that pierces and cuts, is what Hebrews says. So how do we respond when this happens? Do we become resentful and combative? And if we allow anger to come in, hear this, the Word of God will not come in. If we are angry at the Word of God, then we are not receiving the Word of God. It is not settling in our hearts. And sometimes we fail to receive the Word of God because we're angry at the one who is delivering it. That could be true in a preaching context. 
But it could also be true in a one-on-one context where someone is trying to help you and counsel you and guide you, and you're now getting angry at the person. Why? Because they're simply giving you truth, right? So how do you receive it? See, anger is closely related to speech because it is so common for anger to overflow in speech, isn't it? A woman once told the preacher, kind of with pride, I have a bad temper, but at least it's over in a minute, unlike those other people who hold on to it. And the preacher wisely responded, yes, like a shotgun blast, it's over in a second, but look at all the damage that's done. There's no pride, friends, in anger. And we need to think about how we are angry, whether that's we blow up or whether we clam up, in other words, we store it inside. Anger can well up in our hearts, and then our words become the shotgun blast of anger. Let's consider a couple of passages here. A fool gives vent to his spirit. Got that vent, right? But a wise man quietly holds it back. Oh, there's discipline, there's restraint. Oh, he may want to say something, but he doesn't, right? Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty. Wow. And he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. In the parallelism of the Proverbs, of poetry, slow to anger equals rules his spirit. (laughs) The person who is slow to anger controls his spirit, controls himself and his words and his emotions. That's considered to be better than someone who is mighty. It's quite a powerful statement, isn't it? So friends, we've, we've sought to understand here then what, what James now is drawing attention to. His counsel has been to be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. But he's now going to dive in a little bit, in particular, about this issue of anger. Because how we respond to the Word of God is directly proportionate to its effect in us. Okay? And so now he is sharing his concern for receiving the Word. Look at verse 20. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Man's anger does not please God. It's not part of God's plan that his children respond to his word in anger. Remember, he's just said that he is a father who gives good gifts to his children. He's not an ogre who's seeking to reign in our parade or or taking sport in our ups and downs, our trials and our sufferings or our testing. He has given us his word so that we can be wise in our understanding of what he desires for us to do, how we are to live. And if we get angry with the trial or the test, if we get angry with what God is revealing to us through his word about us or about how we are to face the test, we're not working with God, we're working against God. So our anger is, is, is contrary to what God is seeking to do in us. God's wisdom granted to us by the Holy Spirit through His Word is the means of our righteousness. Not our anger at God, 
or anger at the trial or our anger at his word. When someone faces a trial or hears what God says and chooses to get angry with God or his word, they press on in their anger. They're not going to bear fruit of righteousness through their anger. You get that? They're only heading down a path toward more pain and suffering. I'm trying to to, to show you, and James is trying to show you, that when you respond in anger to the Word of God, when you're looking for wisdom, you're looking for guidance in the midst of that test, that anger is not going to bear fruit in resolve in Christ-likeness. It's only going to bear fruit in more struggle and more heartache. So if you're angry at God or angry at his word or angry at your trial, you must ask yourself the basic question, why? Why am I angry at God? Let me give you a couple of thoughts. Is it because I feel like he has let me down? You know, I stepped into this Christian walk, and I thought that in doing that, that God was always going to be with me, and he was going to provide for me. He was going to take care of me. Why am I going through this? Well, part of that is because your view of God and his relationship to you has been distorted. You're not understanding how God works with people. And that kind of moves into the the second point, and that is this. Do I have some delusion that as a child of God, I'm not supposed to go through any kind of suffering or hardship? I think sometimes people feel that. I'm your child, God. Why would this happen? Why would you you allow this to take place in my life? I, I thought you cared about me. Or I'm angry because God chose me rather than someone else. You're happy to pray for someone who's going through a trial, but you don't want to be that person who's going through a trial. And now you're the person who is going through that trial. You'd rather it were not you and it was someone else. That's natural. It's human. It's understandable. But in one sense, it's also saying, God, I'm angry that you chose this for me. When I'm angry at God's word, is it because his word has penetrated my heart and, and revealed what is truly there, sin that must be repented of? Is it because what he is saying seems too hard to do? Friends, sometimes what God calls us to do is hard. Seeking forgiveness from someone that you have offended, someone you've sinned against, is not an easy thing. We don't get up in the morning and say, woohoo, I get to do this. We don't skip along and say, this is great. Going to go and just bear my heart, my soul, and just confess my sin and repent? No, we, we struggle with that on a human level, but we press on knowing it's right and it's good and it honors God and it brings restoration. So when God's word is revealed to us, it can be hard to do. Now, friends, James is concerned here that this anger would not somehow undermine the wisdom that we need to face the trials and the suffering and the tests that are before us. Now, you might say, well, isn't there righteous anger? I mean, the reason I'm angry is because of this trial, and this trial has happened because of someone else's sin, and now I'm in this circumstance. It's like, okay, listen, I understand that there is a place for righteous anger, and we certainly see that with Jesus in the temple. He was angry with those who were buying and selling in the temple, and he got angry. He was angry with the Pharisees um, when they were watching to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath. Yes, he's angry with that. But Paul tells us, be angry and don't sin. Let not the sun go down on your anger. Jesus was angry 
but he remained sinless in everything that he did. So it's true. You can be uh, angry at sin, and it can be righteous anger, but that anger should come about slowly. All right? Usually when we feel like, oh, this is righteous anger, it's not wisdom that is speaking. <laughs> it's emotion that is speaking. It's, it's sinful flesh that is speaking, and we feel righteous and justified to say what we're going to say. Anger at sin is thoughtful. It's wise. It's carefully considered the Word of God, and it's channeling its energy toward resolution. Now, man's response then, the, the, the natural reaction, responding quickly, is typically a man-centered solution that is driven by feelings and driven by what we want rather than what God wants. We need to make a distinction there. So a simple rule or guide in distinguishing between righteous anger and sinful, sinful anger is this. If we would be angry and not sin, we must be angry at nothing but sin. Right? If we would be angry and not sin, we must be angry at nothing but sin. Now, I, I share all that just to say we want to address at least the fact that there can be some things in the trial that you're facing that can be truly righteous anger. But oftentimes, when we are righteously anger and we are not disciplined, it spills over into sinful anger that is intermingled with righteous anger, which then ultimately makes it what? Sinful anger. And yet we still want to hold on to our righteousness, right? Now, bringing all this back, James is focusing and talking about anger that comes about because we are being tested. That's the context. That's what he's talking about here. And he's telling us that if you're getting angry at God or his word, you need to stop and you need to think carefully and apply that word to your lives. Friends, we must remember God has not sinned against us. His word is not asking us to do things that are sinful. They may be difficult in your flesh. You may not want to obey his word, but be careful that your sinful, selfish anger doesn't eclipse the counsel that God is giving you in his word. See, it all goes back to chapter 1 and verse 4, doesn't it? Here we have this trial, and we are to remain steadfast in this trial. And then we see this wonderful picture of maturity. You're perfect. That means you're growing in maturity. You're complete. That means you're, you're, you're no longer being sinful. The idea there is that you're no, no longer uh, tainted with sin and you're lacking in nothing. This is just a wonderful, beautiful picture of what it means to be mature. And this is, what, this is what God is saying. As you're going through that trial, this should be your goal. This should be your focus. So he shared his counsel. He shared his concern. But now what he does is he commands us to receive the word. The question we need to ask and that James is seeking to answer here is this. How do we become individuals who listen carefully, speak thoughtfully, and live peacefully? And James gives us verse 21 to answer that question. Now, if you're going to pay attention to the instructions of 19 through 20, this is what needs to happen in your life. This is how you become quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. You'll have to put something away, and you'll have to receive something. 
Let's look at verse 21. Therefore, based on what I've just said, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. So you have something negative and you have something positive. Well, let's look at this first of all negatively. Put away filthiness and wickedness. The idea of put away has the idea of removing a robe or some kind of a garment. In the New Testament, it speaks of taking off the old self. We find this language used by Paul in a couple of places. In the book of Ephesians chapter 4, this is what we have. Verse 22, to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So there's this picture of putting off and there's this picture of putting on. And verse 23 is the picture then of cleansing that happens in the putting off and putting on process. And then we go to Colossians chapter 3. Paul again says, but, you, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So this put off and this put on language is what James is talking about. He is basically saying the same thing that Paul is saying, but just maybe in a little bit more seed fashion here. He says, put off, first of all, filthiness and rampant wickedness. Filthiness is any sort of moral defilement or impurity. It's actually, it comes from a word that talks about having wax in your ear. And it's kind of a helpful image to say, the whole point here is say, I want to be able to hear God's word. I want to be able to receive God's word. Well, I can't receive God's word. Why? Because I have this wax in my ear. And so what he's saying here is this filthiness, this moral defilement then, hinders me from actually receiving the word as I need to receive it. This idea of rampant wickedness means the abundance of moral evil and corruption. It's a general expression, but it has the idea of sin that is deliberate and determined in my heart. And it also has the idea of hidden sin, sin that no one else knows about except for God. And so he's saying, examine your hearts, and when you see filthiness and this kind of wickedness, ask God for his grace and strength in order to put it out of your Life are the things that will these are the things that will hinder you from truly benefiting from the wisdom God wants to give you through His Word. In today's terms, friends, you know, you know all the kinds of things that, that this is referring to: how you spend your money, how you spend your time, the thoughts that you're thinking in your head, the way you act when you're alone, how you interact with other people, the kind of financial integrity you have any kind of sexual immorality or impurity, racial prejudice, sinful anger, gossip, drunkenness, jealousy, hatred, lust, and the list goes on and on. In order for these garments to be put off, they first must be identified. You have to put yourself against the mirror of God's Word in order for those things to be seen. 
You, 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 friends, we're, we're God's children. He's given us his word. He's breathed it out so that he can, through his word, reveal to us not only his will and kind of, you know, what does he want to do with my life, but what he wants to do with your life is he wants you to become more and more conformed to Jesus Christ. And that means revealing to you areas of struggle and sin in your life that he wants you to do business with. And so when we identify those particular um, garments we recognize that those are soiled garments that need to be removed and to, to be replaced. So the, for the Christian, who, who we go through life desiring for God to reveal those soiled garments of self, we also want to be cleansed in order to put on those fresh garments of his righteousness. So think of it as, as kind of like a, a, a gospel-centered mudroom, okay? This is what Christian life is like. You come into that mudroom. Of course, the purpose of a mudroom is to make sure that when you come in full of mud, that you can deal with it, right? And some of you wives are saying, I wish I had a mudroom in my house. But the point is you come in, and, and it's usually a guy, but we'll just use that as an analogy. Guy comes in, he's covered with all dirty clothes. He sees that they're dirty. He recognizes they're dirty, and so he takes them off. And so in this mudroom, you need a large hamper. This is where all your soiled garments go. You take off the soiled garment. And then you don't just walk over and put on clothes. What do you do? You jump into the shower. You bathe. You step out of the shower. And then you go to the closet. And in this analogy, you go to the closet and you have some designer clothing. It's called the Jesus Christ and his righteousness line. And it's a, it's, it's a big closet. Now, granted, your hamper is a big hamper. But the, I, this is the picture. You're, you're, you're identifying clothes and garments that are soiled that need to be taken off. You're also stepping into the shower and being renewed in the spirit of your mind. You're convinced that what you're doing is right. You're convinced that those garments truly are soiled, and you're convinced that what you need are these holy, righteous garments that only Christ can give. You step out of the shower, and you walk over the closet, and you pull on a shirt and some pants and a jacket and a tie because you're old school. And you know what? You, you're like, this is, this is what it means to live for Christ. And then all of a sudden, one of your garments gets soiled. And you've got to go through the process again. Now, the reality of the picture, friends, is that we walk into that shower with some soiled garments and we throw them in there. And we walk into the shower with garments that we're not even aware of or we are. And we're trying to rub the dirt out, but we can't until we actually identify these things as soiled garments for what they really are. Just trying to give you a picture here, right? This is the language that Paul uses. This is what James is now bringing up again to help his readers understand the effect here of filthiness and wickedness on the heart as it relates to hearing the word of God so that they can have wisdom for the trial or the test they're going through. See, friends, hear this. It's not just about rooting out that sin, although that is really important. That's critically important. But rooting out that sin is the window for you to face your trial. See, this is what he's saying. It's not just, it's not just the end in and of itself. It is the means by which we're able then to see that trial in the way that God wants us to see it and have wisdom to face that trial. And our sin gets in the way. And so we love the Word of God because it reflects back to us what we need to deal with. That's the negative. 
Now we want to think about the positive. And the positive, of course, is receive the implanted word. It was by means of the word of God that we were caused to be born again. That's in verse 18. And now we are commanded to receive this implanted word, which is able to sustain us day by day. So the word of God is the means by which we're born again, and it's the means by which we are sanctified. We are being saved. We are becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. So think of the implanted word kind of, in one sense, like one of your internal organs. Let's choose the liver. You were all born with a liver. I don't know if you knew that, okay? Um... It's part of your creation. It's how you were born. You don't have to do anything to make it work. It just remains there doing its work. Now, unless you're unusual, you're not typically sitting there saying, I wonder if my liver is working today. I wonder if it will do what it's supposed to do today. No, you're just going on in life trusting that the liver is going to do what it's created to do. And friends, that is what happened to you at your moment of salvation. You were regenerated by the Word of God, and that Word of God now resides in you. It's there. But in another sense, the Word of God is not like a liver. It's a little bit more like your lungs, because your lungs are longing for something. Anyone know what your lungs are longing for? Well, ultimately, air, right? I mean, obviously, they need blood to function, that kind of stuff, right? But they're ultimately longing for air. So, so the, the, you have this Word of God that is in you, but you also have this Word of God that is being spoken. And what's happening now is there's a marriage taking place. There's a longing for the, the, Im, the Word that is in you now to be implanted with more Word, right? You're, you're hungry for God's truth. There has been put in you an appetite, a longing, a desire for the Word of God. And this is what the implanted Word does. It is coming in, and it's building on this this foundation of the Word of God that's already in us. So every time we breathe in God's Word, we're cultivating the soil of our hearts with divine fertilizer. We're giving energy we're giving it energy to grow. We're, we're killing off the weeds. We're restoring the patchy areas that need attention. Okay, I was with Sid Ankar yesterday. Just want you to know. So that, that image kind of came to mind as I was thinking about, you know, working in my yard and things like that. But listen, this is the heart. And we, the heart just doesn't say, well, the, the word's already there. You have enough. No, that word is there residing in us because it was the means of our regeneration. But it is also a heart then that is longing and hungering for more word. Let me just remind you of the book of Nehemiah and the story of Nehemiah and the people who were without kind of order and structure in Jerusalem. And Nehemiah comes along and he builds the the walls and Ezra has been there and he had already begun the temple. But one of the things that happened is that the word of God still wasn't central like it needed to be. And 
In Nehemiah chapter 8, I mean, the people are gathered, the walls are built, and they're chanting, bring out the book. We want to hear the book. We want to hear the book. And from the morning till night, they read, they explained, and they got into smaller groups, and they discussed it and gave it more application. And then they came back, and he read some more. There was a hunger for the Word of God. And as we see, the fruit of that was recognition of sin, repentance of sin, celebration, new covenant being signed by the people. Why? Because the word of God was now refreshed in the hearts of God's people. And James is saying something very, very similar here. You and I who are going through trial need to ask for wisdom. God wants to give us wisdom, doesn't he? How does he give us wisdom? By means of his word in a variety of different ways. Now the question is, what are you going to do with the word of wisdom that has been given to you? (laughs) Right? Be quick to listen. Be slow to speak and slow to get angry. You know that your anger is not going to help you move along in your Christ-likeness. What you need is the implanted word in you that is going to have its effect. So I want to ask you this morning some questions. What place does the word of God have in your life? Are you reading the word of God on a daily basis? Now, friends, I don't want to throw unnecessarily guilt on your shoulders. I'm not going to say you have to read four chapters a day. I'm not going to say you have to get into these deep studies. What I'm saying is the the, the average follower of Christ needs to have a daily diet, a regular diet of the Word of God. So much so that it is bringing satisfaction, direction, and food for the soul. Is the Bible something that you only look at when you come to church or you're in home group? Or maybe it comes out now and then when the mood strikes you or when you're having a difficult time and you need some guidance. Friends, don't don't use the Bible as a reference tool alone. (laughs) Use the Bible as, as daily food. And yeah, during those times of crisis, you may have to dig a little bit deeper. You may need to get counsel with it. But God wants you to have this cultivating food of his word in your life, not just for knowledge, but for wisdom and application in your trials. And remember, those trials are not just the big things. They're the little things. They're the things that happen day after day after day. So if you want a closer walk with God, and every true disciple does, then you must have a regular diet of the word of God. It must be the core of your personal Life. So, how are we to receive the word? James gives us two answers. We receive the word of God, first of all, with meekness. And that has really two ideas. The first idea is that, is that of selflessness. In other words, we're, we're, we're putting self and sin aside, we're putting our own desires aside. There's a humility here that says, I want this. But secondly, it also has the idea of being teachable. Are you the kind of person that is teachable? This is a great battle going on, friends. It's a battle going on between our sinful desires that he has just talked about that draw us away and entice us and the very word of God that confronts our sin and guides us through the tests of life. It's a challenge. And we must receive it, this word of God, with meekness and and have this teachability. 
Are you willing to be confronted with your sinfulness? Are you willing for God to stir you up and root out that sin? Are you willing to be obedient when God gives you his instructions? Secondly, not only meekness, but we receive the word with confidence. So we can be confident because it is the implanted word of God that is what? Able to save your souls. Now what James is talking about there is not this new birth in Christ. He's already talked about that in verse 18. What he's talking about is the the ultimate future final salvation that we will experience when we enter into glory. It's what Peter says in his letter, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, says, though you have not seen him, you love him, though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. How do we get there? We get there by receiving the implanted word of God. And as we work out our, sal- our salvation with fear and trembling, as Paul says, we can also take heart from other passages of Scripture that encourage us in similar ways. Let me just show you a few of them. 1 Thessalonians 2.13. When you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. See, it's not the Word of God just comes and goes, slips in and out. It is at work in believers. The writer of Hebrews reinforces that. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of the joints and of the marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intents of the heart. So, it's at work, it's living and active, But not only that, we can see here 1 John 2.14. John says, I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. You see, it's the word of God that has been implanted, that works in us, it's living and active, it abides in us. All right? And ultimately, as we add what James says, it actually saves our souls. It takes us down the path to where God wants us to be in that final day. So friends, having taken these verses at face value, we cannot overstate how profoundly powerful and important the Word of God is for our lives. The Word of God must rank with your most cherished possessions. The Word of God is not something that we just kind of put out there to look nice. You know, this, here's a nice trophy I got when I was younger, or here's a nice souvenir I got when I was visiting some country. This is, this is something that is, that is living, it's active. I remember years ago, there was a controversy in the church over translations, and there was a, there was a particular college that put out a video because they were trying to say that one particular translation was God's preserved translation, and they had this pristine, thick, book, Bible, on a stool, and they had another stool stacked up with other Bibles. These were the evil Bibles, right? And on top of this was a blue Bible. And I watched this video, obviously not liking what I was hearing, and I observed that the new American Standard Bible that was sitting on this particular stack 
was pretty well worn. Because someone had taken it, and I'm assuming had studied it, had embraced it, had lived it out. Now, I want to draw our attention now to bringing all this together. There are two goals that James is giving us, and I'm trying to bring the the big picture logically to a close here of what James is doing. There's two goals. Follow with me here. The first goal is this, trials. In those trials, we ought to remain steadfast. Remaining steadfast moves us to maturity, and that maturity is described in James 1.4 as being perfect, complete, lacking nothing. All right? Now, as he moves to the Word of God, we are to receive the implanted Word of God, which leads us to maturity. And that maturity, James describes here as being being quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. See that? The goal he's talking about here in these verses is that we would be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger, because we are receiving the implanted Word of God. This is the goal with the Word of God. He has a goal for our trials. He has a goal for us as we use the Word of God together. I want to encourage you, friends, if you're facing some difficulty first place you should turn is to the Word. If you need help and guidance, there are people here to help you, to give you direction and counsel and wisdom for what God has for you. Lord, help us with these truths. We know that day by day we are going to face and we are going to encounter either trials or some form of testing. And you don't want us to face those things without wisdom and you promise that you will give us wisdom liberally. And as a result, Lord, you have breathed out your word so that we can be wise. And so, Lord, as we receive the word of God, in particular for that particular trial or that test, would you allow us to be people who want to have that word implanted in our hearts so that we can be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. Lord, we we want to live our lives with the kind of wisdom that you give us. We struggle to do that many times, Lord. We wrestle with what the world says. We wrestle with our own sinful desires and what we feel and what what we want. And yet you speak through your word. Help us to be meek, teachable. Help us, Lord, to see the the, the finished product that you're working on and that the means by which we get to that end is by virtue of the word of God that is implanted in us, that is bearing the fruit of righteousness that only comes through your word. Give us fresh perspective, Lord. And Lord, help us to 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 face that difficulty, Lord, with your help and your strength. And Lord, may we do that in such a way that would honor and please you. And Lord, when we fail, when we struggle, Lord, help us to get on our knees and cry out to you and get back up and plugging away just like a righteous man does. He falls, but he gets up and presses on 
toward that goal. Lord, help us to be those kinds of people. Not to be overcome by tests, but to allow them to be the proof of our growth toward maturity. We pray for our people. Lord, we we pray for those who are struggling right now. Lord, give us wisdom, discernment. Help us to lean on one another. Help us to be the body of Christ for you. Your name.